Let's uh, pause for a minute before we get into the message today. Our purpose this morning is to focus on one thing and one thing alone. And that one thing is God, our King. Our minds and hearts and eyes need to be fixed on one thing only. That one thing is Almighty God, our perfect King. So let's take a minute right now to, to say something, to respond in some way uh, to God. To our King. Go ahead and, and close your eyes for just a minute here. We've just heard the words of an old preacher as he described this indescribable king. What did that do in you? What response do you sense rising up in your mind, in your heart? Maybe you responded already as you were watching and listening. Or maybe the video you just saw was simply entertaining to you. But the reality of our King, the Almighty God, ought to create in us some sort of response. What is that response in you? Is it silent awe? Does the reality of God stop you in your tracks and force you to the ground on your face? Then just stay in that image for a moment. Does the reality of God make you want to run to him with arms wide open? Then do that now in your mind. Does the reality of God bring a word to your tongue that you have to speak to him? Then say it right now. Does the reality of God create a desire in you to offer him something? Then hand whatever that is over to him. You are in the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, seated at his right hand. Just try to let yourself be affected by that reality right now. Father, when faced with the the, the reality of who you are, the reality of being in your presence, we ought to be affected. It ought to create some sort of response in us. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we stand before you merely as your creation. Needing to acknowledge who you are This morning, help us to, to recognize you for who you are, no matter what it does to us. Let us see you clearly, Father. Let us know your presence in our lives in a very real way. Let us come before you now, Lord, with no hesitation, no pretense, no... No masks, no cover-up, and declare that you are our king, you are my king, and we are your servants. Affect us today with your glory, Father, as we get into the word, as we just look at who you are, our perfect king. We commit ourselves to this and to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue this morning in our quest for hope. 
It has been my ongoing prayer for this church family that we would all come to experience the deep and powerful and life-giving force that God's made available to us in the form of the hope that he sets before his children. We have no reason to live without hope. None. God's hope is always available to us and he never wants us to live without it. It is to be our constant companion in life. From the moment we offer ourselves to God and receive his gift of eternal life and a seat next to him and his throne, that hope is there for us. Hope is one of the most powerful factors that draws us to God in the first place, even before we become his children. Um, last Sunday in this room, three individuals reached out for that hope right here and were adopted into God's family. Yeah. Praise God for the hope that he poured out on those individuals. Praise God for the hope that he's poured out on us. Praise God for the hope that he offers us every single minute of every single day. It's there for us. Praise God for the awesome mission that he's entrusted us with of making that hope known and available to others around us in life who haven't seen it yet or taken hold of it. Hope is something that we have to get very good at communicating, Chapel Hill. This world needs it so desperately. Hope is there to remind us that in this unpredictable world where nothing is certain, there is something that we can count on with absolute certainty. And it's not our circumstances, it's not our own abilities, it's not our own reputation, it's not even our families, it's God and God alone. Nothing can deliver the hope that he can. I can tell you from experience that even in the worst of circumstances, in the lowest places that I've been in life, in the midst of devastating loneliness and tangible despair, God has faithfully delivered hope to me over and over again. A lesson that I've learned the hard way in life is the one that the life of Solomon has led us to discover again. Uh, we've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes from an overview type approach. We've looked at just a few major themes in the book and we won't go into any further detail than we have. Today we're going to leave Ecclesiastes behind with one last glance at what Solomon missed seeing in his deep despair that he records there. Um, I believe this is at the heart of what God is saying to us through, through a book that some have questioned even belonging in the Bible. I believe that the message there is a clear one and a very, very strong one. I believe that it absolutely needed to be in our Bibles for us to see. I believe it's a gift from God to us, a, a guardrail that keeps us from empty pursuits in our lives. Solomon messed up. And if you remember from back early in the study, David, Solomon's father, also messed up. Neither of them led perfect lives. After David passed away, God had some incredible positive things to say about David to his son Solomon. After Solomon passed away, God tore his kingdom from his son's hands and everything that Solomon worked for was destroyed. Quite a difference between the two. Why is that? Well, David returned to the source of his hope. Solomon did not. Both despaired. One found deliverance from that despair. And his deliverance was found in his king, in God alone. 
The answer to the question of how we can take hold of hope um, is a ridiculously simple one. The answer is God. God is our hope. No matter what we're facing, no matter what we've done, no matter what we're being told, no matter what the statistics say, no matter what our track record says, no matter what the media says, no matter what we've lost or gained, God is hope. God is, has always been, and always will be hope. Solomon stated at the end of his dissertation on despair that all there is in life that has meaning is fearing God and keeping his commandments. So I think we'd better understand that a little more clearly than we may right now. Solomon said that in the end there's only God. That he is the source of meaning, the source of hope. And Solomon was right. But if we're left with just this phrase, fear the Lord, we may not get the whole picture here. Solomon, in his vast wisdom, had stated in the book of Proverbs, another one of his writings, that the beginning of wisdom was this fear of God that he mentioned. But if we step back and look at the scope of Scripture and not just this one verse at the end of Ecclesiastes where Solomon says we should fear the Lord, we'll get a better view of what he's talking about. And that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to see a balanced perspective on God that Solomon's father, David, was very good at seeing and also expressing. Since God is our hope, what can we expect to see when we look at him? Now, I know there's much to see. Given the fact that God is vast beyond our ability to comprehend, we could easily spend years just looking at his attributes alone. But this morning, as we fix our eyes on him again, I want to explore a foundational and balanced look at just two of his attributes And one of those two is found in this fear that Solomon talks about. Let's begin our exploration with a look at the writings of David because his perspective was balanced, and you'll see that right away. Psalm 33, this is what verse 18 says. Psalm 33, 18, David writes, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. David speaks here of an interaction taking place between God and his people. God, he says, has his eye on his people. And right away I see here a balance of two very different yet complementary responses for us as we come to terms with the fact that God has his eye on us. On one hand, this concept terrifies me. God is watching me all the time. So, of course, he sees anything and everything that I do, and that scares me. On the other hand, the reality that the creator of the universe is so concerned about me that he can't take his eyes off me absolutely thrills me. I'm afraid of God because he has his eye on me, and I love God deeply for watching over me constantly. This is a good tension and the very balance that I want us to understand better today, so let's address the two sides of this reality, fear and love. How can they coexist? How can you be afraid of someone and love them at the same time? How can we find hope in both of these aspects of God's character? Well, we'd better have a clearer understanding of this fear that Solomon and David and many others wrote of. We'll see it mentioned multiple times in the Bible And we have to understand that that there are several words that are used in the Hebrew and Greek transcripts of the Bible that have been translated as fear in the English language. Uh, We're going to focus on this one in Psalm 33 today. 
I've seen the term fear the Lord many times in my life. I went to Sunday school as a kid, and I saw it there. I went to Bible college, and I saw it there. I've read through the scriptures on my own, and I've seen it there. But as far as fully understanding it, it's taken me a long time to get comfortable with what it really means. I've heard the word reverence used many times to explain it away. Some have said that we're not actually to be afraid of God, we're to revere him because he is so great. But then someone like Francis Chan comes along to remind us that it says we're to fear God and that we really are supposed to be afraid of him and I find myself agreeing with that perspective too. Because if we read the Bible and we see things like God flooding the entire planet, uh, we have reason to be afraid. God has turned people to salt. He's struck people dead, sent plagues that make our skin crawl. He's made the sky dark in the middle of the day. He's raised the dead. He's demonstrated his power over and over and over again in ways that make us certain that he is capable of anything and that he can end a life just as surely as he can create one. There has to be some level of fear when we look at God. He is, after all, God. He's the ruler and judge over all things, and we are merely his creation. So on some level, it has to scare us that he's always watching over us. As I uh, prepared this message with great anxiety over where I stand on, in my grasp of this concept, um, I stumbled across a phrase that right away took over as having the place of defining this term for me. This is as close as I can come right now to making sense out of our need to fear God. And this is not the definition for every use of the word fear in the Bible, but it is for the one that we're talking about right now. Um, Let this view of that word sink in as you see it and hear it. Fear of the Lord, a wholesome dread of displeasing Him. Because of who God is, picture that we can only partially see in this life. <clears throat> We're to live with a, a wholesome dread of doing anything that goes against his will for us. This dread of doing anything displeasing to God ought to be one of the strongest motives in our lives for the decisions that we make. Behind each choice we're faced with, behind each opportunity that presents itself, our first thought in making decisions ought to be how this lines up with God's desire for his children. God's opinion has to take top spot in our lives. And this is where I think so many of us, myself included, fall too short far too often. We make too many of our decisions in life motivated by simply our own desires or by the opinion of somebody else. A wholesome dread of displeasing God. That's the fear of the Lord. Now Solomon let go of this fear. He made the decision to allow the worship of other gods to take place in his kingdom in spite of the warnings that God had given him specifically in this area. The fear was gone. and Solomon blew it. His fear of displeasing God was no longer his motivation behind exercising the wisdom that God had given him. His life had begun to lose meaning and he began to despair because he had lost the fear of the Lord. Now think back to the mistakes that that you've made, even this past week. Um, I've done this myself as well, and it's clear to me that in every case, 
the decisions I made that were clearly wrong decisions, one that's, that I regret and, and wish I had never made, were made without even considering whether or not I was going to displease God with my actions. That dread of displeasing him was just not present. And if I look at my mistakes that way, it drives me to pay closer attention to what I'm doing. Considering all that God's done for me, I really don't want to do something that will be displeasing to him. It's not that I'm afraid of what he's going to do to me. It's that I remember just who he is. And I need to, we all need to, remember that more often and allow that fear of displeasing him to become stronger and stronger in us. Look at the words of Psalm 147, verse 11. Um, The one thing that I don't want to do is just give you one verse to build this understanding on. This balanced view of God is something that you're going to see throughout the Bible. But Here's Psalm 147, verse 11, a very similar verse. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. There they are again. Kind of a crazy mix, isn't it? Fear and hope. God wants us to fear him, yet hope in him. So obviously this can't be just a matter of being afraid of him all the time. God experiences pleasure when the motivation behind our decisions becomes the desire to please him and we have a dread, an actual dread of displeasing him. On one hand, there's the awesome power of God, who he is, what he's capable of, all that he's done. On the other hand, there's the love of God, the steadfast love that these Psalms talk about us hoping in. And So let's talk about that love too. This is the side of God's character that we really enjoy considering. Uh, We could go on and on and on just about his love. God's love has so many dimensions to it. It's hard to decide where to start, so let's just take one descriptive term regarding the love of God. Let's look at the term that David uses, one that so many other authors use as well. David referred to the steadfast love of God. This is one of the many aspects of God's love that separates his love from the love that we can offer each other. And this is the one mentioned in the context of hope. So what is steadfast love? Well, God's love is described as steadfast because it's solid. It's solid. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll see this word used to describe God's love. David cried out to God to show him his steadfast love. From the beginning of time, man has been seeking this kind of love. The image of this kind of love is one of a love that is seated. Seated. It's not going anywhere. It's firm. It's foundational. It's love like a bedrock. It never fails, never comes up short, is never conditional. We're We're told to hope in this steadfast love because it will always, always be there. At the deepest level of who we are, we have in us a need to be loved like this with a love that is absolutely reliable and unmoving. And so we're told that God is pleased with us when we hope in this steadfast love of his. Remember that hope means we confidently expect it. We know it's there and that it'll never go away. That kind of love, that kind of hope can only be found in our King. This should be a very strong motivation for us to read through the Psalms. Um, The word steadfast is used 131 times in the Psalms. And almost every time it's used to refer to the love of God being steadfast. Uh, Let's drive this home by reading just one of those Psalms together. 
but let's read the psalm that uses this word steadfast 26 times. Um, and we're going to read this one a little differently. This one was written to be sung as a hymn, and, it's, we're, and I'm, we're not going to sing it. Uh, <laughs> it's quite likely that this hymn was to be sung the way that we're going to read it. Um, I'm going to read a line, and then you're going to respond with a line after each line that I read. All right, so on your feet, we're going to get interactive with this a little bit. I'm going to read, and you're going to respond, um, but you don't have to read. You're not going to read. Nothing's going to be on the screen for you. You have just one line, and you have to learn this line, okay? Here's your line. For his steadfast love endures forever. Say it with me. For his steadfast love endures forever. That's all you have to know, right? That's your line after every one of my lines. You got it? All right, here we go. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. All right, you're getting a little bit robotic here, all right? Give me some expression. I want your GPS voice, not your Siri voice, okay? To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's way better. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, To him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and stars to rule over the night, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Have a seat. 
That's how Israel remembered the steadfast love of their God. They would do this in their dwelling. The, the, the priest would sing the first line and they would respond with that line over and over again. And what a great way to remember the steadfast love of God. Uh, inside of them was a need to know that this kind of love exists. Inside of them was a God-given desire to connect with a love that only God could supply. To connect with him. They had seen his steadfast love for them demonstrated over and over again. Well, so have we. We can see it throughout the Bible and throughout our own lives. We've seen it in the lives of others around us. It's everywhere and it's always accessible. It will not leave. It will not change. It is the steadfast love of God, the very love that we are invited by him to put our hope in. We are made to experience the love of the Lord and the fear of the Lord. We were made to experience God, God's love and God's power. And our hope is in both. It's easy, I think, for most of us to respond to the call to put our hope in God's love. When we talk about this steadfast love of the Lord, we react, yeah, I want that, I want that. We all need this love that will be there for us always and never, never leave. So we run to that. We put our hope in that. We grow in our lives the expectation that God's love is there, is unchanging, and will always be there for us. For many of us, we've been taught about that love our whole lives. But that's not true for all of us. Some of you have never really been taught about God's love. Some of you have never really experienced the love of God demonstrated by him and through others. If I'm talking about you, I want to encourage you to do two things. Um, First of all, Stick around. Uh, You will experience the love of God taught and demonstrated here at Chapel Hill Church. Secondly, take that longing to God. Uh, He does love you unconditionally. And he desires to pour that love out on you. Talk to him. Tell him he is your hope and let him send his love to meet you in your spirit. Don't put conditions on him. Don't tell him how you expect him to demonstrate his love for you. Make yourself available to him to experience his love, his way. And I believe God will be faithful in demonstrating that love for you. Now for all of us, God is calling us to put our hope in this steadfast love, his love. Not someone else's love, God's love. He's asking us to make his opinion, his perspective on us and on life more important than anyone else's. What he thinks of us has to take first place in our lives. It's his love and our relationship with him that has to be first. We've got to respond to his steadfast love by loving him with everything that we've got. That's an indication that he is, has become our hope. But then there's his power. How do we hope in his power? Well, our view of his power, of God's power, has to expand When we hear the term fear of the Lord, it's easy to recall his power, but we usually recall his power to destroy or his power to judge all things. And those aspects of God's power are very real and it's very true. But so is God's power to create. So is his power to give life. So is his power to heal, to restore, to redeem. His power is vast, it's multidimensional, 
And in his power, we can find tremendous hope. The God who has the power to destroy also has the power to create. The God who has the power to judge also has the power to save. The God who has the power to rule the universe also has the power to guide your life. The God who has the power to part the Red Sea also has the power to help you overcome any obstacle. The God who has the power to condemn man also has the power to restore man. The God who has the power to pass sentence also has the power to grant forgiveness. The God who will give victory to his people will also bring defeat to their enemies. That is a God in whom I can put my hope. That perfect balance between power and love describes our perfect king. We are instructed in God's word to fear the Lord. We are to live our lives with a strong desire to stay away from things that displease him. Can we commit to assessing this fear in our own lives? That's a humbling exercise. I am not happy with what I see in my own life, just how independently I make my choices, my decisions. This has to do with how we spend our time, our resources, our energy, our words, our abilities, our influence. God has entrusted us, every one of us, with a life to invest before he brings us to our permanent home. How are we investing these lives that he's given us? In such a way that he will not be displeased with us? Or does his pleasure even matter to us? Make the time this week to get alone with God and assess his importance in your life, in your decision-making, in your choices. Do you fear the Lord in the way that he desires you to? Is he really your king? We're also being called, called by God to hope in his steadfast love. Do you know one wonderful thing that happens when we actually do put our hope in his steadfast love? We stop depending on the love of others whose love can't be steadfast. God wants us to live in the understanding that we are totally, unconditionally loved by him. He wants us to live in the confidence that we are loved this way. Always, no matter what, we can expect his love to be there. We can hope in that love. Is that the love that you're putting your hope in this morning? Or are you still looking for steadfast love from an unreliable source? The God of power and the God of love. That's our perfect king. That's our savior king. And we're going to end our gathering this morning by declaring to God that he is our king. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come back to the stage and have the ushers come and prepare to take our offerings to him. Let's pray together as they do. Father, I'm asking this morning that you open our eyes, that you open our minds, that you open our hearts that you open our spirits up to seeing you for who you really are. And we will realize 
that you are not someone who is defined by us, but that you are God. That you are the one who can simply say, I am, and the earth trembles. That this entire universe and all of the galaxies that are being discovered day after day that go so far beyond our previous understanding that all this doesn't even get us close to how vast you are and how powerful you are. God, develop in us, give us a wholesome fear of you. You are all-powerful. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we are merely dust before you. But oh, how we've forgotten that. How we carry on with our lives just keeping you as a, as a place we can run to for encouragement and to be uplifted how we keep you so often as, as someone that's there just when we need him, when things are going really bad. How we forget that you are our king. That every single thing that we do, every act carried out, every word spoken, every thought should be totally and completely submitted to you. So God, teach us to live in a state of having this this fear of you that drives us to not do things that are displeasing to you. Teach us to never, ever, ever forget that you are there all the time. And to realize that this power that you have It's not just there for us to be scared of. It is there for us to put our hope in because you are capable of everything and you do have the power to save us. And God, remind us again this morning of your steadfast love and of all the times that we look in the relationships that we have for a love that can't be steadfast because we're not perfect. Help us to remember that there is a place where we find that, that your love for us is unconditional and it is seated. It is not going anywhere. It is solid as a rock. And we always have it. We praise you, Father, for that love. Praise you for all the ways that you show that to us, for the ways that you pour that out on us. God, as we go into this week, guide us to a place in front of you where we can evaluate the hope that we have in you. Have we put our hope in your power? Have we put our hope in your love? Guide us there. It's where we want to be. It's where we live and thrive and flourish. And it's the most incredible thing that we have to turn around and offer to the people around us who don't know you. We praise you, God, for who we are. Even now in the act of giving our tithes, we give in the understanding that you are our king. 
that you are not some charity, that you are our king. And you have first rights to everything that we have. Teach us, Lord, to see you that way, to give that way and to give out of love to you because you've loved us so much. In everything we do, teach us to fear you and put our hope in your steadfast love. And we pray these things because of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.